Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted, the Christ Central Festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom transforming the world, and reaching nations making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Uh, It's lovely to see you. Um, I trust that you've had a good time so far, that all your tents stayed up. Everyone relatively dry, relatively comfortable. Not really. No one's, no one's really comfortable when they're camping. Uh, well, my name's Alan. Uh, I am part of York City Church, and I lead the eldership team there. Uh, we've been in York for nearly nine years now, and uh, my wife Susanna and I moved from Brighton to York. That's why I don't sound like a Yorkshireman. Uh, we moved to Brighton in 2008 to join the team, and then obviously in the last few years, we've sent Stephen Ruth Hurd off to Huddersfield, who planted the ark which has been fantastic to see them flourishing and thriving and doing well. And uh, over the years that Steve has been in Huddersfield, and while I've been leading the church over time of studying, praying, preaching, uh, I've become, it's confession time really, I've become something of a markaholic. Um, I began to read and get interested in Mark. The thing that got me interested in the first place, believe it or not, was that it's the only gospel, the only canonical gospel, the only one of the four gospels in the Bible that self-identifies as a gospel, all right? The very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, now that kind of piqued my interest. It's the only one that announces on the scene, this is what this particular document is. And so that got me interested. And so I began to study and read and read and study. And over the years, uh, I had the privilege of teaching on some of the Christ Central Leadership uh, school of Leadership and Commission as well and various kind of contexts. So uh, I've, I don't want to become typecast as the Mark man, um, but I'm kind of happy for that moniker for the time being. So if that's how I have to be known for this weekend or so be it. Uh, but I basically, I, I love Mark's gospel. Uh, I, I think that shamefully when I was uh, in earlier years as a Christian, I, I thought that the gospels were all basically just a load of proofs that Jesus is God and that's what it's really all about. And it's all kind of this preamble until you get to the cross, which is the really important bit. And over the years, God has gradually taught me and worked on me, and I've begun to see that there's a lot more richness going on in the Gospels than I had previously thought. And so I hope that over these three days together, you're going to have your, your thinking, your mind, your heart enriched, stretched, challenged, perhaps, perhaps some of your uh, little sacred cows, if you like, will get challenged and you'll learn to see scripture in a new light. And hopefully one of my greatest, a great outcome for me would be that each person who comes to any of these life zones goes away and thinks clearer and deeper about scripture uh, and thinks better questions when it comes to the text and begins to wrestle with it in a deeper way and in a fresh way. That would be a really, really good outcome for me. So there you go. You've been warned. I've told you what I expect, and uh, I'm not going to ask you to tell me what you expect. That could be embarrassing, um, although I could do it now and then not at the end or something. Anyway, shall I pray, and then we will get launched into this seminar. Is that okay? Excellent. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we get, to, we get to wrestle with who you are. We get to wrestle with this sacred text. 
in which we meet you, in which our hearts and minds, our lives are, are both enriched but deeply challenged. And Lord, it's our desire together over these three sessions together that, that you would meet with us in your word, that we would find you, uh, as it were, leaping off the page, uh, addressing our hearts, that we would find our, our understanding of you, of your identity, to be uh, remarkably grown and uh, developed. Lord, please show us your ways. Teach us what it means to be disciples of you. Teach us what it means to follow you. Teach us what it means to read scripture well and to interpret well and then to do the things that you say, not just to hear them. We ask all this in your wonderful name, Lord, that you would get glory and honor and that we would get great joy. Amen, Lord. Amen. Okay, so the way that this is going to work is uh, you're not going to get the whole of Mark's gospel over the course of these three days because there's far too much there. Uh, but thankfully, Mark kind of divides itself up into a, some nice sections for us. And so I'm going to use the literary structure of Mark's gospel, the way that this guy, Mark the Evangelist, has actually structured the material. I'm going to use that to structure the three sessions. And that's a good place to start in terms of interpreting. How does the author of the text structure his work? Because that gives you some kind of clue into the interpretation and the understanding of it. So we're going to do our best to follow as best we can this structure that Mark has put down for us. As we start off then, I want to talk to you about an act of violence in the Gospel of Mark, right near the very beginning of the Gospel. Um, I'm not talking about the act of violence of the cross. We're going to come to the act of violence uh, on the third day that is the cross. But today there's an act of violence very near the beginning of Mark's Gospel. And believe it or not, it's an act of divine violence. It's not something that is done by man. It's something that God does. It's something that is an, a divine thing. And this act of violence comes in, the very, in, the, in cha- verse 11 of chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel. And it's when Jesus is baptized. And I'm sure that most of you who have been around churches, been a Christian for a while, maybe read the Gospel of Mark or read the other Gospels, you will know Jesus is baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, what happens? He sees, he sees the heavens open. That's right. Or as Mark puts it, he sees the heavens torn open or torn apart. Now, that's a lot more significant than it sounds. Because all the other evangelists, so Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they also refer to this same incident, this kind of Jesus coming up out of the waters. But it's only Mark who refers to the heavens being torn open. All right? Mark says the heavens are torn open. If you read in Matthew 3, verse 14, Matthew says that the heavens were opened to him. And then in Luke's gospel, again, the heavens were opened. Now, that's very important that Mark uses the Greek word for tear open. And it is a different Greek word. If you're interested, it's schizomenus, right? That's what it means to be torn open. And there's another word in Greek that just means to be opened. And Mark uses this word to be torn open. And that's a significant thing. I'm going to tell you why shortly. But first of all, let me say that it's important when we read Mark's gospel In fact, when we read any scripture, 
uh, to try and become sensitive to what's going on, not just right in front of us in the text, but what are the, the other allusions perhaps to the Old Testament or to other events that are going on in the text? What are the kind of clues there that might deepen our understanding of what is actually being said and what is going on? And one of the necessary skills to interpret Mark's gospel well is to listen out for the subtle hints and the sometimes not so subtle hints that Mark gives us uh, that suggest he's drawing on the Old Testament, on what he would have known as the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And now that's tricky, isn't it? And it's tricky for many of us because we're not that used to the Old Testament. Is anyone reading an Old Testament book at the moment? Okay, not very many. Has anyone read an Old Testament book in the last six months? Well done you. Good for you. Now, we're, but we're not very familiar with it, are we, on the whole? We kind of have it, it comes up in our readings, we skim through it perhaps, or we kind of go to the bits that we like. But we're not very well versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. Or maybe we're used to Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew is very blunt and upfront, isn't it? So all his Old Testament references, he says, this took place to fulfill the scripture. And it's kind of a da-da-da-da-da, just to leave you in no doubt whatsoever that this is what is going on. But Mark is a little bit more tricksy than that. Mark is more subtle in the way that he, uh, he approaches uh, his use of the Old Testament and how he uses the scriptures. And that's one of the things that when you're reading Mark, you have to begin to listen out for and become aware of when you're just because Mark's using the Old Testament and he's pointing to who Jesus is using the Old Testament and it's very subtle but powerful and so hopefully what I will do in this session is help you to understand a little bit about how he does that and why that's very important for our understanding of his work but also who Jesus is. Now if this all sounds complicated I'll, I'll give you an illustration. If I said to you the president was at ground zero to commemorate the events of 9-11, then I think you would all know, without having to look at the screen, which president I was talking about at the moment, for now. Uh, It might be Donald Trump in a few weeks. Lord Jesus. We would all know which president we were talking about, what country it's in, what ground zero is, and what the numbers 9 and 11 refer to, all right? I imagine that none of us in this room perhaps those of us who live in a cave somewhere in the Outer Hebrides, maybe, uh, perhaps all of us would know this is exactly what the 9 and the 11 refer to. This is what's going on. However, if you were to mention it to a Mongolian goat herder like this fella, you might get a slightly blanker look. President who? What? Ground zero? 9 and 11? What, What are we talking about here? The point, of course, is this that we understand the subtle references to a broader narrative because we live within that. That's the world that we live in. It's the world that we inhabit. And so when someone uses shorthand code for things, we understand because it's plain and obvious to us. But if you don't live within that world or that worldview or that way of expressing and thinking about things, it can seem a little bit foreign to you, right? Hence, the Mongolian goat herder. I don't know, maybe he has Sky TV in his, in his kind of yurt somewhere, I don't know. But generally, you get the point. Unless you know and are alive and alert to the subtleties going on, you might miss things. Perhaps then, when it comes to interpreting Scripture, we need to develop a similar sensitivity 
to the world and the culture and the expectations and the knowledge of Scripture and the understanding and interpretation of Scripture that, would be, that would, the author would have understood in order for us not to make mistakes or to read things into the text or to go beyond what the text is actually saying. There's a need for us to develop a sensitivity to the kinds of things that are going on in the world of the text so that we don't miss things that are important, okay? So we're going to begin doing this very kind of thing. I know it sounds complicated, but I want to tool you up with some things to get you thinking and help you thinking about these things when it comes to reading Scripture. We're going to do that very thing using Mark's Gospel. Okay, Uh, by the way, I should just say, my style this morning, I will just kind of plow on um, and, and speak. If you have a question, interrupt uh, stick your hand up, and I will, I will either answer it then or give you an idea of when I'm going to defer it until, uh, or I might say, come and speak to me afterwards. But please don't sit and just please interact and ask questions. Um, I thought perhaps I could put some breaks in and Q&A things, but I, I don't want to assume that everybody here is in the same place. You might not even think of yourself as a Christian this morning, and so maybe what I'm talking about is going to go over your head a little bit. Perhaps you've been a Christian for 40 years, and it's going to go over your head a little bit as well. Perhaps you've been a Christian for 20 minutes since this morning. I don't know where you're at, so please feel free. No question is out of bounds, but I might defer you a little bit, or I might deal with it then. Is that okay? Mike, are you happy with that? You are. Mike's happy with that. Mike Springer's happy with that, ladies and gentlemen. That's good. If Mike Springer's happy, then I am happy. So, we're going to come back to the, rending, the, the tearing of the heavens at Jesus' baptism, okay? Remember I said that Matthew and Luke say that Jesus sees the heavens opened, and only Mark uses this Greek word schizomenus to say that the heavens were torn open, and that's very, very significant. Isaiah 64 verse 1, it's the only place in the Old Testament where the Hebrew verb to tear is used in reference to the heavens. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you might have read about clothes being torn, about garments being ripped and torn. You remember the bit when, uh, when uh, Saul reaches out to try and grab Samuel's robe as he's turning away from him and the robe tears? The word tear is often used in that context. Here in Isaiah 64 verse 1 is the only time in the Hebrew Scriptures where the verb to tear is used about the heavens. And look at what it's saying. It's Isaiah's prayer on the back of his of Isaiah 40 to 55, the great servant song, the longing for a new exodus, for God to move in exodus power again for his exiled people. And Isaiah says, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you would tear the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So what Mark perhaps wants us to understand then when he describes Jesus coming up out of the waters in baptism and seeing heavens torn open, and it's God who does the tearing open, right? This is no human hand tearing the heavens. What Mark is suggesting to us is this is indeed the point at which God comes down. Here it is, in the person of Jesus, in this identification with sinful, exiled Israel, in his identification with sinful man, in his obedience to God as a servant, he's baptized, he comes out of the waters, and God is coming down in the person of Jesus, right in front of our very eyes. God is coming down, and this is what it looks like when he does. Okay? We're going to come back to this idea of tearing, right towards the end, because there's another reference to tearing in Mark's Gospel, that if you know it well, you will know what I'm talking about. We're going to come back to that 
a little bit later on. This is a starter for 10, if you like, to get you thinking, hey, Mark uses the Old Testament, and there's little subtle allusions to things that open up for us the whole meaning of Mark's gospel in ways that if you just read it off the page, you might not notice, all right? Now, there are two key sections in the gospel of Mark. Two slash three, actually. There's two key sections, and there's a kind of middle bit as well. The first section of Mark's gospel runs from verse, chapter 1 to chapter 8, roughly speaking. And this section we're going to call the way of the Lord. Right? Mark's gospel begins with this, uh, this kind of mashup of Isaiah and Malachi and a verse from Numbers. And it's, uh, it begins with this kind of prepare the way of the Lord. And so the whole, Mark's setting up this gospel narrative, this story for us and saying this is about the way of the Lord. That's how Mark begins in the first half of Mark's gospel we could really call the way of the Lord. And then we get this second section, this kind of transitional period from chapter 8 roughly to chapter 10, which we could call the redefinition of the way. And within this section, what you find is that the way of the Lord is still in view, but what's being said about the way of the Lord is shaping the way that we think about the way of the Lord and who represents the way of the Lord. And then finally, in the third section of Mark, it's chapter, roughly chapter 11 to 16, uh, we have this way of the cross. And so from chapter 11, Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he goes up, uh, he rides the, the colt, and people cry out in the words of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they add this other phrase, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. There's this entry into Jerusalem, and then that leads quite quickly to the crucifixion, Jesus' death on the cross, which we read about in chapter 15 of Mark. So three sections, two key sections, the way of the Lord, the way of the cross, and in the middle, this redefinition of things, the way of the Lord gets redefined so that we begin to understand the way of the Lord as the way of the cross. By the way, Martin Kaler, who was a a 19th century German theologian wrote that Mark is like a passion narrative with an extended introduction. You'll notice that if you read Mark. It's quite quick-paced, and Mark uses this Greek word, euthus. It's immediately, immediately, immediately. There's this kind of quick, bam, 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 this movement, and then, and then the brakes go on when you get around chapter 14 in the garden. It's like, and then you've got 14, 15, 16, where it's just all focused on this short period of time in Jesus' life that incorporates his uh, the, the trials and the crucifixion and things, all right? Martin Kaler spoke about that in the 19th century. Uh, it's true, it's, an, it's, it's not really quite an extended, uh, it's not really a, just a passion narrative. There are two things going on here. There's more than just a, a, an intro to, a, to the cross. There's a lot that's happening in terms of who Jesus is and what his identity is. So where I want to go from here then is the first section of Mark, this way of the Lord. I want to explore now uh, a few ways in which Mark is going to use the Old Testament to identify who the Lord is. Because the way of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40, the, the prepare the way of the Lord, the Lord is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of covenant. It's the Lord God Almighty. It's that Israel's God. And so when Mark starts his gospel speaking about the coming, preparing the way of the Lord, 
any Jewish reader or anyone alert to the Old Testament scriptures would be thinking, well, this is about Yahweh. But who we meet then when the narrative begins in any kind of, you know, any kind of sort of thrust, we meet Jesus. We find Jesus is in view. John the Baptist turns up on the scene preparing the way for who? For Jesus. Oh, hold on a minute. But you were just talking about Yahweh, Mark. You were talking about the way of the Lord from Isaiah 40. You were talking about that Lord. So who is this then? Who is, how do we understand Jesus? And it's one of Mark's, one of the great things about Mark is this kind of leaving questions hanging. If you're somebody who thrives on certitudes and getting quick, easy answers and understanding immediately, well, perhaps Matthew's your man. Mark is going to tease you and he's going to leave questions hanging. He's going to leave you going, wait a minute, do I understand? Do I? Do I get it? When, he, when Jesus asks questions of the disciples and, and he says, do you not understand yet? And it's a very, very, I don't know, it's a helpful question for church leaders to hear, isn't it? When Jesus has to ask his disciples, don't you get it yet? And it's like, yes, Jesus, <laughs> exactly. You knew exactly how I was feeling today. Uh, and perhaps if you are not a leader of church, that might be offensive, so I'm very sorry. Um, and pastors as well find that they don't get it half the time as well. As well you know, if you've been in a church for any amount of time. Mark's going to leave us questioning, who, who is in view here? Who is, who is being talked about? Who is Jesus? Who is the Lord? How are we to understand this person, Jesus? And the first place that Mark starts then is here with this way of the Lord, Isaiah, Hebrew scripture, something about this person, Jesus, who's coming on the scene. This is more than just a Jewish rabbi or prophet. There's something else going on here that's deeper somehow. Oh, I do beg your pardon. I thought that was up already. Um, this is actually the text. I sent my messenger before your face, all right? I thought it'd be interesting, actually, if we had more time to go through this verse and look at the places, because although Mark says that Isaiah has said this, there are two or three Old Testament allusions going on here. One from Malachi, where he's talking about the messenger, the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly appear. And one from Numbers, actually, that's talking about a leader like Joshua being raised up for when Moses departs. It's really interesting, this kind of mashup of texts. Anyway, there it is. This is my slightly scattergun approach and my not grasp of technology whatsoever that means that we're a little bit behind in the slides. Okay, so we've got the way of the Lord. And who is the Lord? Well, we're, we're meeting Jesus in the text, but we're, we're, we're hearing about the Lord. We're hearing about Yahweh. What's going on here? Then we have who can forgive sins. The question that the Pharisees, the scribes, ask in their heart is, who forgives sins but Jesus alone? Okay, here's the text. This is from Mark 2. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? Do you remember the scene? What's happened is Jesus is in his house, which is his house, by the way. In the Greek, it's he was in his house. It's not somebody else's. He's at home in his own gaff. And while he's there, some guys come along with a paralytic guy and rip a hole in Jesus' roof. And it's Jesus' roof. And they lower him down to the... And Jesus kind of... It's almost tongue-in-cheek, right? <laughs> Look at the roof. Your sins are forgiven. You know, you can almost imagine Jesus having a slightly wry smile on his face. Obviously, they're coming with this, this guy who, who needs healing. The point is, who forgives sins? That The scribes say, this guy's blaspheming. Only God forgives sins. 
And they would, of course, be right in terms of their understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures because Exodus reveals God forgiving sins or forgiveness of sins as being a key element of God's very identity and personality. His nature is to forgive sins. It belongs to the divine nature to forgive sins. So who on earth is this guy who forgives sins? So you could read it and see this kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek thing, and maybe actually Jesus uses that as a riff around forgiveness of sins to kind of tease them out and find out what's going on. But Jesus here is acting in his own authority to forgive sins. It's not like he's saying, well, God forgives sins, and so I'm going to call it out on God's behalf and forgive sins. He doesn't say, God says that your sins are forgiven. He just says, son, your sins are forgiven. He acts in his own authority, in his own right, as one who alone has authority to forgive sins. He's acting, he's embodying the person of Yahweh, of God. And as he speaks this forgiveness, he's, he's saying, listen. And so when they say, hang on, who can forgive sins but God? It's a good question. And Mark is asking us to see in this moment that, hey, Jesus is not just some good teacher. Here is the embodiment of the one who forgives sins. And I wonder as well, because this is because this is in Jesus' house, because it's and you might want to call me out on that later on and question, but it's okay, that's fine. But let's let's think for a second. It's Jesus' house. Jesus is present in Jesus' house. What does that kind of figure somehow? It's, it's the temple, isn't it? The temple is God's house, and God dwells in the temple, and in the temple forgiveness of sins occurs. People's sins are forgiven, the priests declare forgiveness of sins, and here's Jesus in his house. And one of the themes through the Gospels is that the temple is finished. The temple is over as a system and a means of being or identifying yourself as God's people, as a means of worship and access to God. It's all being redrawn around Jesus. And so here he is in his house, acting in his own authority to forgive sins, to forgive the sins of this man who has come to him or the guys who have come to him. There's all kinds of things going on there, all right? Are you beginning to see some of the kind of, oh, hang on a minute, you just kind of tap a little bit and there's this kind of depth factor that comes in when we start to ask these questions and look at Mark in this kind of way. The next one I want to draw your attention to is in Mark chapter 4, at the end of Mark 4. And if I had a fiver for every time I'd heard this text referred to as a kind of, well look, don't worry because when you're in trouble, Jesus is with you in the boat and it's bound to get better, I would probably be relatively wealthy. I don't think I'd have quite paid off my mortgage, but I might have had one or two nicer holidays over the years. Who do the wind and sea obey? This is the text. We read, he awoke and rebuked the wind. And so this is the, the disciples are in the boat. Sorry, I've, for, this, for the sake of brevity, I've just edited so that you've got the kind of the key point on the screen. The disciples and Jesus are in the boat. They're going to the other side. This storm awakes. Jesus is sleeping in the bow with uh, a cushion. And it's like a real eyewitness moment, that, because there's so much detail. And the disciples are freaking out. Uh, and they say, oh, master, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus wakes up and he says, peace, be still. He stills the storm. And then the disciples are terrified. They're awestruck. And they say, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And that's a good question. And Mark doesn't give you an answer. He leaves it hanging there in the now hushed atmosphere. <sighs> who then is this? And of course, we'll go, oh, it's Jesus, it's God. But there's something deeper going on again, okay? There's something else going on. 
There's an allusion to a number of psalms in this text. A few psalms. I'm going to give you two, just because there isn't space to do all of them. Here's Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord, that's Yahweh, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. The Psalms speak about Yahweh, God, alone, stilling the waves and the wind. And in the boat, on the lake, Jesus speaks, and there's hush and still. He enacts and embodies the authority of Yahweh to still the unruly forces of creation. And then Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Wow! No wonder the disciples go, who then is this? What? Because if they know the Psalms at all, well, they know full well. Only the Lord God, Yahweh of hosts, he stills the raging of the sea. And by the way, a little aside in here, the Jews were not a massively seafaring people. They weren't a great trading, traveling, kind of on the sea. They viewed the sea with suspicion. The sea was the source of chaos. It's like the the sea in in Genesis, it's like this kind of primordial chaos from which evil comes. That's why in the book of Revelation, the imagery is of the the beast kind of straddling with his feet on on the sea. And in the end of the new heavens and earth, it says there will be no more sea. I don't know whether that means there won't be any aqua when we get into the new heavens and earth, but it, it just means that there's no more chaos and primordial chaos from which evil can spring again. And here we've got Jesus doing what Yahweh alone does commanding the waves and the wind and and just demonstrating for us that he is the embodiment of the one who who rules and reigns over the chaos and evil, stilling the storm, stilling the waves, commanding with authority. And the question is hanging there for us, who then is this? This is the embodiment of Yahweh for those who have eyes to see. The next text comes in Matthew chapter 6. Who is the shepherd of Israel? You know about the feeding of the 5,000, right? They go off into this desolate land. Jesus teaches quite late into the night. Good preacher. And uh, while they're there, the disciples say, well, it's getting late. Send the crowds away. Um, Tell them to go and get some food. And Jesus says, well, you, you give them something to eat. And it's like this kind of crazy... Jesus throws it all back on the disciples in that moment. But what is important to notice in that story is not so much the miraculous feeding, which in itself is a hint at who Jesus truly is and what kind of figure he is for the people of God. There's an earlier hint at something. Here we are. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Hmm. Sheep without a shepherd, that hints at a verse from Ezekiel, one of the prophets. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. So when you get Jesus then commanding the people to sit down on the green grass, you've got this picture emerging here. Jesus is essentially acting as Yahweh, the shepherd of his flock. He is saying here, look, Mark is telling us this Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh, my shepherd, the one who has come finally to gather, to restore, 
to put back together, to heal, to renew, to shepherd. And it's really fascinating because just after this incident, uh, just after, just before, after or before, not around this incident, you've got this little kind of breakaway point that almost doesn't make sense in the flow. It kind of switches suddenly to Herod. And who Herod, who isn't really a king at all, he's a tetrarch, he's someone who owns a section of Roman-governed Palestine, and he's been granted a little bit of it. He's Herod the Great's son, one of Herod the Great's sons, and he kind of has a little bit of rule, kind of under Roman rule. He's a little bit of a puppet king, if you like, and he's a wannabe king. And then this wannabe king is in his palace with his wife's daughter, or the, the daughter of Herodias, dancing a kind of dirty dance, and he's kind of lusting and larking and mocking with his friends. He's supposed to be the shepherd, the wannabe. He's the wannabe king. He thinks he's the shepherd of the people of God. And in that context, Mark shows us, here's Jesus. This is what it's like when God shepherds his people. This is what it looks like when God shows up to be the one shepherd of Israel with compassion and with tenderness, to gather and to bring back and to restore. Mark is telling us again, with allusion to the Old Testament, to the prophets now, This is Yahweh, the shepherd king, in the person of Jesus. How are we doing for time? Oh, very, very well. Thank you. (laughs) Didn't realize I was being piped into that venue. (laughs) This is my favorite bit now. Who walks on the sea. We have this interesting little interlude where the disciples are rowing back across the lake. And Mark tells us in detail, it says they're making headway painfully. And the Greek word means kind of torturously. It's kind of the root of the word torturous. It's kind of, it's terrible. They're straining up, getting anywhere. And in some ways, that little detail kind of is a hint at how they're doing in understanding who Jesus is as well. It's torturous. And poor old Jesus, I mean, if he's doing his head and it's torturous for them. And then it says that Jesus comes walking on the sea. I mean, what an incredible thing. Now, it's easy to say, wow, what a miracle. Jesus walking on the water. Isn't that phenomenal? That's incredible. And yes, it is. But there is an old, this is perhaps the subtlest Old Testament allusion. But it is also perhaps the profoundest. Because this actually points us to the book of Job, believe it or not. Let me, let's see how this goes. Here's Mark 6. About the fourth watch of the night, he came walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. They saw him walking on the sea and thought it was a ghost. And then in Job chapter 11, he alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. So in Job, Job is talking about Yahweh, the Lord again, the one who tramples the waves of the sea, the one who has authority over the primordial chaos, the one who has authority over evil and unruliness. He's the one with might and power, and yet he's so near that he passes by me and I don't even perceive him. Job says it's almost like he's a ghost. He kind of, like a will-o'-the-wisp. He passes by. I've got no idea. I'm clueless. This mighty, powerful, glorious ruler king. And I don't get it. I'm blind to it. He, oh gosh, he just passes by me. And here we are in Mark. 
the disciples in a boat, crying out with fear. He's about to pass by them. And the point is this, that Jesus, here he is, the embodiment of Yahweh who walks on the waves of the sea, the embodiment of the one. He's going to pass by, and they cry out, and then he enters the boat, and again, peace, be still. And so Mark is pointing us again to the Old Testament. The reason he's doing all this is that he's trying to show you that Jesus is this embodiment. He's God embodied. He's Yahweh in flesh. He's not someone who points away to God to try and describe what he's doing. He's saying, no, I, I am the very embodiment of Yahweh. The parents of L. Davey from Gateway Leeds, if you could go to Arctots 2, that would be great if you're in here. If you're not in here, he's somewhere else. Behold, he passes by me. <laughs> I perceive him not. <laughs> Always the worst, aren't they? Scripture gags. Oh, where was I? I see, I lecture away and I kind of end up preaching and then I kind of lose. I've, I've learned this thing about preaching, right? If you're a preacher in here, if you get off on one when you're preaching, don't try and go back in your notes to where you were. It's a bad idea because it always falls flat. Just keep going and don't worry about the notes. They'll do for another day probably. Um, so we've got G- Mark's trying to show us all the way through. This Jesus is, and it's, he's, see how he's using scripture, allusion to scripture. Scripture reveals who Yahweh is. This is not just he's kind of, he appears on the scene and everybody goes, oh wow, he's God. There's this subtle, enigmatic, mysterious thing. Mark never comes out with it and just says, do you know what, guys? Listen, Jesus is God. He never does that. He never just says it. Titles like Son of God, Christ, Son of Man, Son of David, they are not divine titles. Now, that maybe sounds a little bit radical for you, but it's true. Son of God in a first century Jewish context, which we're talking about here with the Gospel of Mark, the disciples, in that context, Son of God meant the King, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And it goes back to 2 Samuel 7 where God promises David, one of your sons will sit on your throne forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And so a son of God will sit on the throne, a son of David. And so that's what son of David refers to as well, a king, an anointed one. Messiah or Christ, Messiah is the Hebrew word that means anointed one. And what were kings? They were anointed. They had oil tipped over their head, which is awesome. Maybe they should do that to prime ministers and presidents as well, or dunk a barrel of oil over their heads. Uh, Anointed one. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah, which means anointed one. So these titles, the Son of Man is a messianic title. It refers to Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet sees one like a son of man who goes to the ancient of days and is given dominion and authority and rule and has defeated the the enemies of God. And so these titles don't automatically mean divinity. Mark wants you to see through his gospel that Jesus is the embodiment of God in a deeper, richer, more satisfying, narratively driven way that gives you a sense of, oh, wowzers. This God who we've met and have known and seen, we now see in the person of Jesus. It's better and deeper then Mark's not just going, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. He's not doing that. It's almost too glorious and mysterious to say it out, just out up front like that. He's teasing out your understanding. And listen, this is really important. 
Because sometimes as, what kind of, as, as believers, sometimes as evangelical believers, we like to talk, don't we? We like to speak. We like our certitudes. We like it neatly parceled up and packaged up, and that's fine. But there are certain things that ought not be said too much. And there are certain times when words don't quite cut it enough. There are certain moments where silence and awe and wonder are appropriate. And Mark, throughout his narrative, wants to draw out your wonder and your awe. He wants you to respond like the disciples in fear and trembling and say, who then is this? He wants you to be like them. The point of the Gospels is that you emulate the central character, but it also cuts you to the quick because you realize, I'm just like those flaky disciples. And we are. We're all going, wait a minute, hang on a minute, like, you know, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Oh, of course, we haven't got any bread. We're all thick as two short planks when it comes to being followers of Jesus. But sometimes I think we're too quick with our words. Sometimes we're too quick to speak out certitudes about God, and God is mysterious, friends. Yes, you can know him. Yes, you can be sure about him. But there's a place for awe and reverence still. And the easy, ozy familiarity of some charismatic evangelicalism needs to be tempered with a sense of the depth and the weightiness of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't make it necessarily easier for you to know or follow God. He's more challenging, if anything. It's difficult. But he draws out your awe and your wonder. And he asks you to bow before him in awe and wonder. So let's, it's almost like Ecclesiastes, let our words be few. It's not really about worship in that context, but it's, I think sometimes we have to hear that, right? Sometimes we're too quick to speak. Sometimes we need to just let it brew. Sometimes we need to say, Do you know, I, I don't know. I'm going to be studying Thomas Aquinas this coming term at university which I'm excited about because I don't really know very much about Thomas Aquinas at all. Um, so I figured, hey, here's a chance to go deep into a, a kind of classic historical theologian and learn uh, because it's not all about what's next. And there's continuity here. Aren't we? We're standing on the shoulders of giants. And so one of the things Aquinas talked about was analogy and language. When we speak about God, it's analogical. You, how can you, when you think you've nailed God with your language, you haven't. You've fallen short. Because God, if you, can, if you can speak totally about God, that's not God. The minute you think you've spoken completely about God, you've slipped into unorthodox thinking and heresy. Because our language is slippery. And language about God, when, it's speak, when we're speaking about God, is stretching language to breaking points. Because God is eternal and sublime, ineffable, all those things. And that's perhaps why Mark is a little bit, perhaps Mark is a bit of an Aquinas. <laughs> perhaps he knows, hang on a minute, we are talking about mysteries profoundly deep. And the best we can do here is to hint and allude and suggest and fall on our knees to worship. Because there's depth about this person, Jesus. So the question becomes... And in a moment, we're gonna, I'll give you an opportunity to, to ask some questions, if you like. Um, and my remote control comes back online. There we go. The question for us is, do you perceive them? 
as we saw the way that the Old Testament forms a kind of a matrix for understanding who Jesus is, have you perceived? Have you seen it fresh today? Have your eyes been opened or are you still blind? Are you beginning to understand that this person, Jesus, it goes way, way deeper than you thought? Did you think that the Old Testament was just there as a kind of unfortunate preamble before Jesus appeared and everything was a cakewalk then? Or have you understood something about the continuity that this one God is now coming to his people, the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus? And Mark is showing you this mystery for you to wonder at. Is your heart hardened? Are you sitting thinking, this is just too complicated? Are you a Christian anti-intellectualist? It's not a good thing for the church. Unless there were thinkers like Mark and authors like Mark, or John, or Paul, where would we be? Everybody is a theologian, because everybody speaks about God. It's just what kind of a theologian you are. Is your heart hardened? Are you thinking, nah, I don't know, I don't like this. I prefer it simple and straight. Oh, hang on a minute. This is God's word. This is what he's given us, friends. This is, this is the way God has chosen to communicate to us, not just what he's chosen to communicate to us. And so loving God and meeting him in his word means paying careful attention to the words as given in the context that they're given, in the paragraphs that they're given, in the language, with the matrix of the Old Testament and all of that stuff. Have you understood yet? May God grant us deeper understanding of the divine identity of Jesus Christ. And may we wonder at it. May we become better worshippers, better followers of Jesus, better emissaries for the kingdom as we do so. Tomorrow, we're going to look at the second section, the transitional section. This has been about the way of the Lord. Who is the Lord? Who is this Jesus? Tomorrow, we're going to look at the transition and how in Mark's material, there's this change that happens, this transition starts to unfold. We're going to explore that together before the Sunday morning we look at the way of the cross and zone in on one particular chapter of Mark's gospel. But I'd like to open it up for anyone who's got questions. There's a roving mic, so Graham, the beautiful Graham Anns, my lovely full head of hair assistant over here is going to bob around and uh, we'll give you the microphone if you have a question. Anyone want to go for something or a comment? Uh, I'm happy for anything. You can disagree. You can throw a tomato. Um, but yes, we've got a question. Uh, can you tell us your name and just where you're from? Be all right. uh, my name's Leon Robinson. I'm from Salford. I go to the Manchester Christ Central Church. Hi, Leon. Um, we, I quite often have discussions, I'm in the worship team at our church, I quite often have discussions about choice of songs on a Sunday morning, um, and quite often I personally have arguments with people about whether we should have songs that kind of name Jesus. I'm, I'm personally in the camp that I think we should be a bit more free in our songs, but quite a few other people argue back and say, no, we should be mentioning Jesus in songs, we should be mentioning scripture in songs, they should have content like that. Where, where do you think that sort of sits with what you've been talking about and what say, I mean I've also been reading Pilgrim's Progress and Bunyan at the start of that has a big poem about, you know, yeah. Jesus talked in parables, he didn't necessarily make everything clear about what goes on. Yeah. Uh, that's a very, very big question. Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's okay. That's fine. Um, 
And so it looks like tomorrow we'll give the seminar over to that question. Um, <laughs> I think it's both and. Um, I think that you can become pharisaical about content in songs. Um, I think sometimes people get jumpy about, well, that phrase isn't in Scripture. Um, well, there's lots of phrases in the New Testament that weren't in Hebrew Scripture. Um, so you kind of have to sort of, you know, you have to kind of, there's a fine line there. I think it's important to have, I mean, this is, this is the place of the creeds, right? So the church has historic creeds that are not there to be slavishly always repeated. The creeds and, and doctrine is basically, they are checks to keep you from wavering away into unorthodoxy. That's what doctrine is about. Some people want doctrine for doctrine's sake. Unless it, unless it sings like Grudem, it's not good. Well, how you sing Grudem anyway, I don't know. But unless it's all doctrine, then well, then that's, that's not great. But as we've seen from Mark, there is, the, the, the theology is narrative. It, the theology comes out of the narrative. And so I think perhaps what we need is more creative ways of articulating theology from a narrative perspective. Maybe that means we need more verses and better storying, better narrative uh, skills somehow. I, I, I don't know. Oh, have we got another, what's this? So I, so I think we need, we need great content because there are things, you know, you, Scripture isn't a bunch of blank pages and question marks, isn't it? Is it? It's not like, oh, choose your own adventure. <laughs> like it, it'd be a really short book. Um, so I, I think it's about, it's about expressing what Scripture says in a way that shapes an, our understanding of who God is and shapes our identity as the people of God. Worship, worship does, it's a funny thing. I, I've been, it's like on a, I'm on a journey with this. Prayer, worship, spiritual disciplines, probably, probably a lot of us think that it's about the outcome somehow. We pray, it makes God do something, crudely speaking. But there's huge swathes of church history that say, no, we pray and God does something in us. God shapes us. We worship, God loves it, but that shapes us. And so what we say about God is not just a free-for-all. It's not just, well, I think God is, you know, you get that, don't you? Oh, for me, God is, I mean, that kind of, for me, at the start of a sentence, I was thinking, oh, here we go. And it's a little bit like, it's a bit of a sky sports culture, isn't it? You, you get that. Let's, let's tell us what you think. I see and watch the news and I think, I don't want to know what Bob Holness from Tiddly on the Wold thinks about anything. I want to hear the news. It's like this kind of whole, let's, let's talk about our perspective. We've got a perspective on Jesus. He's the embodiment of the God of Israel. Mark tells us about it. Let's hear him and let's sing that. Let's celebrate that. Let's rejoice in that. So, yes, content, hurrah, massive, important. But freedom for expression that is creative, absolutely. I, I like Mark, John Mark Macmillan's songs. I, it's, about the only, oh, it's about the only kind of Christian CD that goes on sometimes in our house. The, the John Mark Macmillan stuff, like he has just some wonderful phrases. I won't repeat them all because it's, you know, you'll be bored. Um, but it's, it's great. Get the CD. He's not a friend of mine. I'm not on the commission anyway. I hope that helps. That's just a couple of... Yes, we've got one here and one at the back. So let's... Um... Oh, and there's another one at the back. Keep your hand... Put your hand up just so I can see. Okay, blue top, and we're going to go here. We'll go here, back, and then right at the back. Is that okay? Hello. Um, Hello. I'm, I'm Vaughan Griffiths from Barnabas Church in Shrewsbury. Hi, Vaughan. Um, I was just thinking, um, when you said about the Spirit of the Lord coming down on Jesus at his baptism, mm -hmm. is that when sort of... When Jesus was baptized, was that when the full spirit come down to him? And is it similar when we get baptized? Is that, you know, when we feel the spirit of the Lord come to us? 
Oh, wow, now there's a Dr. Arnold question. <laughs> um, I, think that, I think that in Mark's structure, and what Mark's, Mark's not really very interested in telling us like specifics about whether Jesus receives the full spirit at that point. He's the one who's anointed by the spirit. He's the anointed son. That's like an, it's an anointing scene. You know, the, the spirit descending is like a royal anointing. So what does God say? This is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. That's the son of God again. It's a kingly thing. So one of the things we'll see a bit later on in a, in a couple of days' time is this whole motif of the king of Israel. So the, the spirit descending and the father's voice and the baptism, it's about the king of Israel. He's being identified as the anointed one. Uh, you could perhaps talk about whether that's normative for Christian experience. I can't remember the last time I baptized somebody and a pigeon fluttered down. Um, so perhaps not. I think it's a stylistic way of, of Mark saying this is about the fullness of the spirit that dwells on the Messiah King, probably. I think in the nutshell. And I think probably someone like James Dunn uh, would talk about <coughs> baptism. Well, well there's, there's four things, isn't there? Four, James Dunn has four kind of key poles of becoming a Christian. It's repentance, faith, baptism, and receiving the Spirit. There he is. He calls them conversion initiation process. And you read scriptures and you find that they don't always happen in a nice, neatly packaged bundle. You know, Peter's preaching to Cornelius in his household and BAM! Whammy! It's like the Spirit's dropped on them all. And they're like, he's, what? Uh, it's, we want to we package it up and get clear about it, but God's not always interested in packaging it up. God's free. And when we try and use language and doctrine to co-opt God, we're on slightly dodgy territory. So I think yes and no, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> your question. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Paul. That's great. We had a lady at the back row, and then there's, there's a man at the back. Hello, I'm Emily from Barnabas in Shrewsbury. I think it's just a quick question, but you know you said when uh, the heavens were torn open, when Jesus was baptized, and then... Um, that was God coming down to earth or some, something like that. I was just wondering what about the incarnation or sort of what the difference is between that and the incarnation? Yeah, okay. That's a, that's a very good question. Um, so in, so when, the, when the, okay, the heavens are torn open and Mark's, Mark's inviting us to see at that moment that what is happening is this is the, hang on, no, backtrack a little bit. So the, Mark uses that kind of mashup of Isaiah 40. So preparing the way, of, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then there's this thing about the, the, the Lord whom you seek will appear in his temple, and that's kind of from Malachi, and there's a Joshua thing. You've got all these different themes going on and coming together. You've got the, the theme of the Exodus and the hope for a new Exodus, that what God did before in rescuing his people, he would do once again. And that's what Isaiah 40 through 55 is about, is this new Exodus. And so Mark's kind of saying, look, in this thing with Jesus coming, this is, this is the announcing of the beginnings of the new Exodus. So when he's baptized and the heavens are torn open, it kind of points us to the fact that, okay, here, here it is. What Isaiah longed for, a new exodus, is beginning here. The heavens have been rent and God is coming down. This is about a new exodus that's unfolding, but it's now in and through the person of Jesus. The incarnation, that's a doctrinal piece, all right? So it's, that's what we understand. It's kind of how you know, Paul's great hymn piece in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, but he humbled himself. The incarnation, it's, we read back, so we have to, the theologians have thought backwards about the incarnation. Hang on a minute, what do we think about this? And who, 
What's happening here? And of course for Luke, I mean, there's an element in that question that I want to say each of the Gospels has got their own different flavor and theological raison d'etre. Mark's got this, he's got a reason for writing. Matthew's got a reason for writing. Okay, Mark, we've seen some of Mark. Matthew is like, Matthew Matthew contains 90% of Mark. Isn't that crazy? There's something like 670 verses in Mark. Matthew contains 643 of them. So Matthew has taken Mark and has inserted five blocks of teaching of Jesus in, peppered in between in Mark's gospel. That suggests that Matthew's a Jew, some people think Matthew's a Jewish rabbi. And so the author of Matthew is a Jewish rabbi. And what it suggests is that Matthew thinks that Jesus is the new Moses figure. Hence the five blocks of teaching of Jesus because there's five books of Torah in, you know, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, they have different reasons for writing. Luke is very different. Luke's a Gentile. He's writing. He's probably under the patronage of this rich guy called Theophilus, who he's writing. He's telling a story. And in Martin Luke's telling of it, it's all about subversion. It's about the, the high and mighty are brought low, and the weak and the poor are lifted up. And so Matthew and Luke are the only ones that, out of the, the Synoptic Gospels that deal with the birth of Jesus. And they kind of tell it in different ways. In Matthew's telling of it, it's about the fulfillment of the purposes of God that go back, way back in Israel's history. And Jesus kind of stands for the whole of Israel in the early chapters, right? So when it talks about him coming out of Egypt, it's out of Egypt, I call my son. And he's quoting from Hosea, and Hosea's talking about Israel as a nation. And so they're doing very different things. But Luke has that kind of, you know, the Magnificat and everything, Mary rejoicing, oh, wow. You know, to lift up, to give mercy to Israel, to redeem Israel from their foes. They're each doing different things. And so the incarnation, we don't see the incarnation in Mark. We just get kind of this wham from the beginning. Boof, Jesus appears. Woof, off he goes into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Um, so I think that you have to read and see Mark from, from Mark's perspective, right? This is key, right? You read a biblical text and you let that biblical text speak to you as that author wants to speak to you. Read it like that first. And yeah, there's doctrinal things that you can bring into conversation with it, but you've got to read each evangelist and read it from their perspective and understand what it is that they're saying and how they're communicating through what they've, through what they've written, okay? So the incarnation comes in in Matthew and Luke somewhat, but we really see a full flowering of the incarnation perhaps in Paul's writings, um, or John chapter 1 even. I mean, there you've got the kind of the huge incarnational piece. Um, some people call John's gospel theologian, a theology for readers of Mark. <laughs> so I think it's a really interesting piece, you know. It's kind of very sort of, um, it's kind of there's depth and there's a different kind of style. But it, yeah, does that help, does that answer at all? I don't know, you have to tell me if I've not answered the question. Cause Thank you very much. <laughs> you've probably got more than you bargained for, but I'm sorry. Man at the back. Hi, I'm Graham. I'm from Stafford. Hi, Graham. Um, you spoke about how Mark draws allusions from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. but you also mentioned eyewitness things like the cushion in the boat. Yeah. Do you have a view on where he gets his eyewitness things from and how he uses them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the commonly held understandings of what's, uh, of the origins of Mark's gospel is that it was actually Mark, John, that's John Mark, who has been a companion at times of the Apostle Peter, um, Peter mentions Mark a couple of times, you know, and Mark's kind of associated with Peter. And so what you've, what the, the kind of, one of the, th- one of the theories is that 
Mark and Peter are together in Rome. Um, the first generation of Christians is dying out. Um, there's an oral tradition of gospel preaching that kind of goes on. It's the apostles preaching. And so what happens is that the church in Rome recognizes that they're, they're soon going to lose sight or lose some kind of connection with that first generation of preachers. And so they ask Mark to write down a memoir, if you like, of Peter's preaching and to order it so that they have a kind of solid memoir of what Peter has preached. And so the kind of eyewitness bits, you get these little things that you think, oh, okay, right, so this is, that makes sense. If Mark has taken Peter's preaching and has, put it, has written it down, then there's going to be eyewitness bits because Peter was with Jesus. Um, that's one of the theories in terms of how Mark has come together. There are all kinds of theories because the synoptic gospels, people have struggled with the fact that they tell the same story in really different ways and some of the details change. You know, like in... Um, in the, in the first half of Mark 5, there's, there's a demonized man amongst the tombs, but Matthew has two demonized men. And in the, then in, uh, in Matthew's account, there's two blind beggars as Jesus is going into, into Jericho. And then there's one in Mark. And it's like, well, hang on, what's going on there? Is it, is, is it a mistake? Or is it Matthew, who's borrowed most of Mark, making sure that people don't mistake him and Mark? Probably that. There's probably nothing more spiritual or weird than that. It's just a way of distinguishing between his work and the other guys. Um, so I think that the eyewitness bit very definitely comes in. There's, there's all kinds of little ways that it, that it comes in. There's a guy called Richard Bockham who wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, if you're interested in delving into that more. And he points out some of the eyewitness things in Mark are a little more subtle. So when, in Mark 14, you have this scene where uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees plot together to kill Jesus. Then you've got Jesus who's there, and you've got the woman who comes with the expensive perfume and pours it over Jesus. And, and they all say, what a waste. And he says, no, no, and she's, she's anointed me for burial. And then Judas goes out and goes, he betrays Jesus. And you've got three attitudes towards Jesus' death in there. You've got the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, You've got Judas, and then you've got this woman. And the woman is never named. And Richard Bockham suggests that the woman's never named because at the time when this gospel was written, she, would have, she could have still been alive, and it could have been dangerous for her to have been named when the churches could have been persecuted. So there's all these little hints and allusions about how, you know, but that's the stuff that you get with kind of weighty theological books that sit weighing down your shelf amidst the Mark Driscoll and Rob Bell <laughs> books. <laughs> Oh, there's loads of questions. All right, okay. Graham, quick, man. There's some over here. Keep your hands up high. Let's, let's see you. Hi, David. You all right? Alan, I just wanted to ask about um, Mark 4, um, where it says, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, some people would say that Jesus was deliberately obscuring um, the truth to outsiders, but... Um, making his teaching clear to his immediate disciples. And I was just wondering what you thought about that and could shed any light on sort of those verses, really. Uh, David, I could shed a lot of light on those verses. It just depends on how much time you've got. Um, right. What, what is important to understand with the parables is that Jesus is speaking to Israel. What you've got in the parables is not Jesus preaching a generic message about salvation to a generic humanity. You've got Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the people of Yahweh, to the people of Israel, to the people of God. 
And it's a very complex thing because what he does in the parables is he, he draws, he hints at certain scriptures that would have been used as a real hope for God smashing the face of the enemy in. And he kind of twists it a little bit. So the one, the one that springs to mind is the parable of the sower, I think, when it kind of, it talks about the man who sows the seed and he sleeps, he rises, the seed grows, but then in the end he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come, right? That's in Mark 4. And the thing about, oh, hang on a minute, let's just get this. Parents of, parents of Kim Wintermeyer. Kim Wintermeyer's about 48. Must be a different Kim Wintermeyer. No? Kay Wintermeyer? Sorry. You're doing a really good job, though. It's child bingo. Wherever <laughs> um, God to. It'd be easier if we had it on the screen, wouldn't it? That'd be much easier. Uh, so, the, yeah, so that, the power of the sower, the, the sickle going in, that is a subtle hint at Hosea. And in the prophet, Ho, oh no, the prophet Joel, I beg your pardon, in, in Joel, it's just, it's after the bit where it talks about your sons and daughters will prophesy or pour my spirit on all flesh. Uh, he talks about multitudes in the valley of decision. And there's this kind of prophecy there where God, the prophet speaks about God putting in the sickle and basically chopping down the enemies of Israel when God appears to restore his people and to bring them back from exile and to renew them again, to make him his people again. But what Jesus is doing is he's redrawing that. And it kind of leaves you hanging and guessing, well, hold on a minute. The sickle goes in, but who are the ones who are going to get scythed down? Because Israel has these texts that they hold on to as, we're going to be the people of God. And when God shows up with the kingdom and with judgment, we're going to be all right, mate. But the Gentiles, and especially the Romans, are going to have their legs carved off by God's sickle. And Jesus suggests, hold on a minute, guys. Can you perceive that in me, the kingdom and the king is present? God has come. Will you receive God? Because if you don't, you might become the ones on the receiving end of judgment. That's what's going on in the parables. Now, that makes it very, very difficult to interpret them when you're preaching to a room full of Gentile believers. Because we don't wish that God would come in and, well, maybe you do, scythe down Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but you, uh, you've got to be, I suppose the point becomes, hang on a minute, are you using your privileges and your sense of identity as a Christian in hope that God will scythe down my enemies in the end? Because take care you might find yourself on the wrong side of God's judgment if you hold that kind of attitude. Who now? Parents of M. Heaps. Anyone? All your children are very, very patient and are being looked after by friends and church members, aren't they? <laughs> does, that, does that help answer the, the question? The, Jesus, I mean, the disciples don't even get it. The disciples don't even get the point and Jesus says to them, are you still hard of heart? And it's like, hang on a minute, look, guys, you're, I'm calling you. You're supposed to be the ones who are inheriting this kingdom. You've, you, I've called you in. Don't you get it? There's an interesting a sweep, actually, from chapter 3 of Mark into chapter 4 in the parables. Because chapter 3, you've got there's, there's four different groups of people. Um, and the way that it works, the text kind of goes from, it's like it's called a chiasm. right? So you get two, the, the beginning and the end, you've got... Uh, you've got these, you've got Jesus' disciples. So Jesus calls the 12 and he calls them apostles. And then right at the end of chapter 3, there's, you know, the, he points around to the 12 and he says, these are my mother and my father and my brothers, okay? Then you've got the crowds who sort of hover around Jesus but aren't particularly committed to him. Then you've got Jesus' family, his actual brothers and sisters and his mother. And then you've got 
the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's like this sandwich with the scribes and the Pharisees in the middle. And the, 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 the parable of the sower in Mark 4 has four sowings and four reapings. There are some who don't bear any fruit at all. There's no fruit. There are some who get a bit. There are some who get a bit more. And there's some who bear fruit massively. And I think the point Mark is saying here and that Jesus is pointing out is, look, it's the ones, it's my disciples, it's the ones who are closest to me. They're the ones. They're my very family. They're the new family of God in Christ. They're the ones that will bear much fruit. My very own flesh and blood, they don't get it. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't get it at all. They're on the outside here. Because Mark is showing that outsiders become insiders. And the ones who think that they're insiders end up on the outside. That's one of the schemes in Mark's gospel. That's partly what's going on in the parables. I don't know if it really answered the question either, but... No, no, that's really helpful. Okay. We need to pre-call it quit. Oh, my goodness. We do need to call it quits. Does it finish at half twelve? Oh, okay, no, we don't. Oh, yay! <laughs> the joy, the glee of realizing you've got more time. Uh, were there any other questions, comments? Anyone else want to pipe up with anything at all? This is like that moment in the Gospels. Oh, yes, there is. Yes, there we go. I was going to say, it was, nobody dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> Very brave of you. Hi there, uh, Carla from Bolton. Hi, Carla. Um, thank you for all the, um, you know, the, the teachings on the revelation that Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about the application of that. And what I was thinking of, I was in Africa early on this year, mm-hmm. and the bishop, who was a very, very deep thinker, had come to this revelation, and his application was that like, for example, when he was baptizing people, he no longer baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He baptized in the name of Jesus because it was so strong with him. Okay. Um, and I just wondered how to balance all of that, really, if you've got any practical um, examples you can share. Well, um, yeah, I guess so. Uh, gosh, again, there's a seminar's worth there, isn't there? Um, it's a very good question. Um, let me, let me start with this. I think because this is about narrative understanding, I think what it does is it invites Christians to find their identity within that narrative. It invites you to, end, it's drawn you into a story because the gospel is not three things you need to believe to get your sins forgiven and go to heaven. It's the climax of a story. And the gospel means the announcement. And so Jesus appearing on the scene and announcing the kingdom is here I mean, we have certain ideas about what the kingdom means, but for a first century Jewish hearer of that, there's a bunch of expectation. There's a a ton of baggage that kind of comes along with that. Uh, And so what we have to try and do, I mean, it's a a lifelong task. Uh, and And I'm just starting in it in terms of preaching and teaching this, is that you're trying to, through your teaching, preaching, discipling, root people in this whole massive story that has reached its climax in the person of Jesus. Because it's not just that with the coming of Jesus, we sort of sweep the Old Testament away and now we just have the New Testament and that's all good. Because frankly, there wasn't a New Testament proper until the fourth century. And so the whole kind of idea of, well, you know, you've got 
you know, the, the first Christians, had, they had the Old Testament scriptures. When Jesus, post-resurrection, walks with Cleopas and his friend in Luke 24, what does he do? He unpacks the scriptures, and he's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Ephesians. He's talking about the law and the prophets. He's talking about the whole Hebrew scripture, how it all speaks and points to him. And so I think what we, one of the applications is that we need people to understand that the whole Bible counts and to root people in that story. And there's a degree of continuity. There's, there's continuity and there's discontinuity. The continuity is that there is now a people of God, or there's a new people of God, and there's a people of God in the Old Testament. We stand in continuity with that, but discontinuity as well, because now our membership of God's people is, is kind of clustered and redrawn around Jesus. But Jesus isn't severing the old, he's fulfilling the old. And he brings us and believing Jews into this fulfillment of God's purposes. And so the fact that he's revealed as the embodiment of Yahweh is important because it's Yahweh who gathers his people and it's Yahweh who restores his people and it's Yahweh who triumphs over the enemies of God and all the rest of it. And so if you're a Gentile or a Jew, you find your belonging in that narrative in Christ. You've become part of this historic thing that God is doing. Um, so that's, that's one practical thing. Um, I guess another thing is just teaching people what titles about Jesus really mean and what they, what they are. It's about richness, I think. Depth. Um, uh, one of my great passions is that the church is deeper. Now, what's the good of being 10 miles wide and about one centimeter deep? That's not being a disciple. No way. We need depth. The, the church needs depth, drastically. And the embodiment of Yahweh stuff, that's, that's deep. Um, but you've got to go there, I think. That's just one practical thing. You could talk, I'm happy to talk to you more, you might want to. No, I'll stop there. There was a whole other sermon appearing at that point, so we're very close to the end. Anyone else with anything else? Otherwise, we'll just call it a day for now, and you may want to come and speak to me privately. Um, you could do a Nicodemus on me if you like, and come at night. Um, Please wait until my four-year-old's asleep, though. <laughs> Don't wake him up. And if you've got craft beer, all the better. Um, okay, we'll finish there. Thank you for being so attentive. Let me just say, if you're going to brave it tomorrow, it'd be a good idea to read Mark 8, 9, and 10, please, if you can. All right? If you really want to reap the rich benefits that you will get from my seminar on my live tomorrow, Mark 8, 9, and 10. All right? Thank you very much. Have a great afternoon.